Well, hearty welcome to today's podcast hosted by the Telex Institute and the World Forum for Ethics and Business. My name is Christoph Glaser and I'm a CEO at the Telex Institute. Today, we want to talk about breath-based mindfulness in the agile transformation. And obviously, these are quite many buzzwords in one sentence. So what is our intention here? We would like to have a discussion with two great leaders on the incredible speed of change in the world and the importance of finding that inner stability, that inner calm, that self-awareness to live well, to be resilient, and to have a creative mindset. We'll all remember the famous quote of Professor Klaus Schwab, head of the World Economic Forum, who has famously said that probably change will never be as slow as it is today. And it is commonly believed that in the next 10 years, 40%, a good 40% of today's businesses won't exist anymore if they are not able to transform in the speed and direction which is needed. Probably another 50% of today's jobs will not exist anymore. So the world has become more volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. We call it the VUCA world. And the question is, what do individuals need? What do organizations need to be able to not just kind of adapt, but actually lead that change? So to discuss on the implications of these transformational times and the importance of mindfulness in coping with it, um, we have invited, and I'm so happy that uh, you have both confirmed, uh, two very special guests, both from different fields. We have a leader in the field of science, a professor at Yale and Stanford, who has done an incredible amount of research on the topic of happiness, health, mindfulness. And on the other hand, we have a leader from the business world, uh, responsible for people and culture in one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. So today's uh, podcast is a meeting between business and science, and I very much look forward to it. So let me introduce to you Professor Emma Seppale. She's a lecturer at the Yale School of Management, uh, Women's Leadership Program. She's an international keynote speaker and author. In fact, her uh, book, The Happiness Track, I've read it myself, has been translated in dozens of languages. It's a bestseller. And she's also a science director of St at the Stanford University Center for Compassion and Altruism. Welcome, uh, uh, Emma. It's, it's, it's wonderful to have you, have you with us. Thank you, Christoph. It's always a pleasure um, to, to meet with you. And I would also like to welcome um, Torsten, Mr. Torsten Dahlhofer. Torsten, um, you are such a, a, a well-read, highly trained leader and consultant with a wealth of experience amassed in over 20 years. You have worked as a consultant and a facilitator for large organization, organizations, MSEs, and multinational organizations active in the banking, logistics, and um, insurance industry. And today, you're an organizational development expert at Roche, and you also work as an independent consultant. Dawson, thank you for taking the time. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Hello, Christoph. Hi, Emma. Hi, Dawson. Now, um, Emma, um, it almost seems to me you have been working on the topic of health and happiness your whole life. And obviously, Corona has brought the speed of change in our world to a completely new level. This last year has surely changed all of us. It has sometimes shocked us. It has probably brought us out of balance. Mm -hmm. And it was a test to the resilience uh, to all of us. If I look at the Telex Institute, for example, if I look back to February 2020, we basically were walking into a wall. All our seminars were cancelled for the next three to six months. And it was all about developing a new business model, finding a new way to make a difference and reach out. Um, we used and I used to happily try, travel to clients, spend the time with people in one room. I loved it. It meant a lot to me. It felt so purposeful. Every week um, I used to travel around in the world and maybe I could jokingly say the world was my living room today. The living room is my world, the Zoom is my world, uh, and so it is for all of our trainers. So we had to be agile, we were forced to it. Um, and yes, um, 
after one year, I think we have been able to, to, to live that change and make a difference and, and be useful to the world again. So I was wondering, how have you experienced these 12 months? What was your biggest challenge, um, maybe in your personal life and as a professor, professor at the Yale University? How did you cope with it? Well, um, I think I felt very fortunate. I mean, uh, everything moved online and to me that uh, felt very seamless. So I was just felt really lucky. Also, we had continued childcare. We were kind of a pod with our, um, with our nanny. So I just, we were very, very fortunate. Um, and, um, you know, I was trying to do whatever I could to, to support, um, people around me, but, um, I, I have to say that it was, it was seamless and, um, moving online just felt, uh, it felt like it worked, you know, if, and in that, I think that's what was, I think we've all learned is, wow, we, we can connect this way too. And we can collect, connect meaningfully too, which is a relief because if we hadn't been able to do that, I think it, we'd be in, a, in, in an even sort of more challenging place right now. And we've been very lucky to all be healthy and stay healthy. So we're, we're deeply grateful and, and just really lucky, honestly. Yeah, yeah that that's really great. So I was wondering, Thorsten, I think also uh, you enjoy a lot being with people, being in direct touch. Um, you're also living in this uh, virtual world now. How have you coped with it? And what was your biggest challenge and learning one year into the pandemic? Um, I, I, I was torn, quite frankly, because as you said, my, my, my job is to go out there and interact with, with people. And of course, that was, that was taken away completely. Right, and we were all stuck behind the behind the screen and looking into that little hole at the top of the screen, and 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 try to continue doing what we do on through that medium. Mm -hmm. um, so that that felt bad in the beginning, and and I was one of those guys who was very vocal in saying this will not work, and we can't turn everything online, and and. My performance is based on me being able to be in the room and use my presence in the room and so on and so forth. So, so that didn't feel that good. On the other hand, I'm a highly introvert person. So I didn't mind being at home by myself with, with my dogs and, and not constantly having to interact with, with people and stuff. So that felt good, you know, or that, that was convenient in a, in a, in a way. So it was really, I was oscillating between those those two ends of the of the continuum for quite a while in the beginning. Now, uh, today we talk about breath based breath based mindfulness in the agile transformation, and uh, obviously, Torsten, new work for a company which is living and breathing that agile transformation. In fact, Roche, I believe, has made it to one of the most important goals to become agile over the last couple of years, and. Um, in, with an incredible uh, kind of collaboration, you were able to um, produce one of the first, if not the first, Corona test in the world uh, uh, almost a year a year back, which is certainly a testimony of 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 true agility and collaboration. So, um, how would you actually define what is an agile transformation, and what is the key to be successful in it? It's a big question. Um, I, you know, I think the, the, the key was, and, and that's also what an agile transformation is in, in, in the shortest description that I can give. It's, it's questioning all the mantras you believed in and, and lift up to on a, on a daily basis, right? Questioning how you do things and being willing to, throw everything overboard and do it differently. If you find out that there's a better way of doing it or a, a better process that suits this specific situation, right? And um, and I think we were, as, as Roche, we were very lucky that um, our, our senior leaders um, took the decision to go on this journey to become a more agile organization four or five years ago already. So this has been going on for a while already in, in Roche. So when the when the pandemic hit us uh, uh, or hit the world last year, we were already four years into this agile transformation. And so 
it was almost like um, we've just been presented with the best test case ever to try and see what Agile can really do and whether our transformation can um, can bring the results that we need right now. And and as you said, it, it, it worked out extremely well. You know, we, we were able to have the first solution ready after less than four months, something that typically takes us seven years to take a new product to the market in 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 that field, right? And and I think that was only possible because people were just trying to find everybody who was involved was just trying to find the best way to tackle this problem regardless of what the process is regardless of how we've done it in the past regardless of what we think we know everybody was just trying to figure out what the best way to is to 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 deal with this situation and the leaders were brave enough to um either sit still and watch what's happening and let it happen or actively support it you know and i think it it, it takes guts to do that because a lot was at risk of course a huge reputational risk if you're in this situation the first one to uh, take a product to the market yeah absolutely and it's interesting you're saying the leaders were um they had the courage to sit still, yet they had to be so fast. And I think the way I understand agility, it's really that combo, that magic, um, let's say silver line between being fast and stable and still uh, aware at the same time. And that brings that flexibility. And that really brings uh, the topic of mindfulness um, into the picture, because sometimes when we need to be so fast, we are driven, we are on autopilot. And guess what? All we do is replicating our patterns. So. Um, Emma, I think you have studied um, the topic of mindfulness for the last, I would say, 20, 20 years or so. And um, I've also been in the field of delivering mindfulness programs in corporations for about this time. And what I have seen, quite frankly, is that um, obviously initially 20 years ago, uh, it was still difficult to, to do so. Um, people did really not understand what, what has a mindfulness program to do with, let's say, performance. Um, people felt this could be done in a in a yoga studio, but but not in the the business world. This has changed. We know that every morning at the World Economic Forum, mindfulness classes are happening. The biggest organizations of the world, like Roche, SAP, Google, etc., are using it. Yet, what I have seen is that when people are really driven, and if they yearn for that relaxation, they want to sit down, they want to meditate, they want to relax. It is not that easy. Sometimes when we close the eyes. All we experience is the stress and, and, and the many thoughts we have. So here the breath plays a very important role. We know that it um, impacts very much our um, autonomous nervous system and it can help us to relax. So from a scientific perspective, Emma, why is breath so important to help relax, unwind and dive into that space of mindfulness? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so... I think what's interesting is, uh, first of all, I think what Torsten just said was so so fascinating. This ability to observe and move, and that has so much to do with with this ability to be mindful, to be clear headed, but also innovative, right? And so, how do you get there? Look, if you ask people, uh, audiences from around the world, what is the one technique you've learned to handle your own emotions? People are going to say. Just stuff them down, suppress them, bottle them up. But that's just generally, you know, whether it's people from Europe, the US, all over the world, that's the general sort of message we've learned about how to handle our emotions. And, you know, whenever you ask, well, how's that working out for you? People usually say, it's not working out for me, right? <laughs> I mean, and, and, and so that's interesting. But let's look at the research. If you look at the research on handling our emotions this way, which is the way that most people have learned it, um, it actually makes the emotion worse. Uh, so for example, let's take anger. If you have anger or stress, right? And you bottle it up and you don't show it on your face. You're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Actually, the, the physiological impact on your body is all the more. So anger we know is has a, a very big physiological toll on your body, heart rate, blood pressure, inflammation, etc. But when you suppress it, 
all of those systems actually increase. And even at the level of the brain, you see that the emotion centers are even more activated. So basically, whenever we suppress something, it's like you take a soda bottle and you're shaking it up. I mean, it just gets more intense. And I think we've all seen that in our lives. Either you explode at some point or it comes out as passive aggression or you get sick, right? It's, that's just one of the things that happens when you're constantly doing that. And so uh, what I find really interesting here is that, okay, what, what have psychologists recommended this thing? Reappraisal. I'm sure you've heard of it. If you've been in a therapy session or talked to therapists, you've heard of cognitive reframing, restructuring, basically look at the situation from a different perspective to make yourself calm down in the moment. Now, that is all fine and good if you're talking your way out of a parking ticket or something like that. But imagine a big stressor in your life, a big personal stressor. Um, you know, I think we've all experienced that in our life at some point where your emotion is so strong there's no talking your way out of it, right? You know what's less helpful is when someone else comes up to you and says, why don't you calm down, right? That, that's even less helpful. So why? Because when our emotion centers are that highly activated in our brain, we actually lose the ability to use the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that is responsible for logical thinking, for reappraisal, for, for sort of uh, rational, the rational mind, right? So what then, what do you do? And I think that is where it's really interesting to think about breathing because in those moments, you can't ration, rationalize your way out of the emotion. It's not happening. But if you change your breathing, you actually start to trigger the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the calming response. That's the opposite of the fight or flight or the stress response, right? And so in that moment, within minutes, you can actually change your ability to think rationally, your ability to think logically, your ability to innovate, your ability to be emotionally intelligent, your ability to be a good decision maker because you've regained your ability to, to think clearly. So that is probably the most basic way in which using breathing exercises in particular is probably the most efficient technique for regaining your mental balance and your mental ability to sort of handle the situation successfully. Thanks, Emman. <laughs> I really love that picture of a soda bottle. And I must admit, um, I'm practicing mindfulness since 25 years. But during this lockdown, I sometimes also feel like a soda bottle. Um, nevertheless, I do appreciate the benefit of the techniques, of course, very much. Now, uh, Emma, you have done so much research uh, on the impact of, uh, let's say, breath-based mindfulness techniques on happiness, on health. And there's a strong link there. At the same time, you're also alluding to the fact there's a strong link between these techniques and thinking clearly or being able to even be innovative. And there's research on the impact of flow. McKinsey, for example, has published a study which indicates um, they have done with, with more than 5,000 people over 10 years, which indicates that when being in that state of flow, their uh, employees were almost five times more productive. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see our ability to be in flow today where we are constantly interrupted and how can then uh, uh, mindfulness play an important role? Well, let's think of our ability to innovate. So if you ask, you know, if you ask yourself or really anyone, like when is it that you get those aha moments, those ideas that come to you when you've been, working on a problem and you're trying to figure out a solution and all of a sudden you're in the shower or somewhere and you're like, oh, here's a solution, right? So you will find that you get those ideas, those innovative solutions, those new perspectives when you are in a relaxed state. So when you're in the shower, you're taking a walk, you're in the car, you're not on your phone, you're not focusing, you're not concentrated, sweating at your computer, you're relaxed. And so we know from research on creativity that we're most likely to get those aha moments when our brain is in alpha wave mode, what does that mean? It means it's not so relaxed that it's almost asleep and it's not focused. It's in that in-between state, you could call a meditative state of mind. And so if you can help people to be in that state more, you know, as a leader, for example, in a workplace, you, you don't want people to overwork constantly day and night because actually you're, you're limiting their ability to access that state, right? That's why you want to encourage you know, time off, you want to encourage space and, and lower pressure in, in some, some senses. I mean, it's good to obviously give people goals. That's important for creativity, but within that space, allowing them to access that alpha wave mode. And so practices that, um, like breathing, it's such like the sky breath meditation that you teach Christopher or, or, um, any of those, any of those relaxing techniques can help people access that that space uh, fairly uh, fairly quickly, thanks to the physiological sort of pathways that we talked about earlier. 
yeah, yeah. And that's that's obviously absolutely great. You know, um, many a times when 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 working with uh, with leaders, um, quite let's say um, how to say people senior leaders can be quite shocked and and kind of feel not good about the fact that many a times at the workplace or in key meetings they're not really able to be creative mm -hmm. they don't have the best thoughts at work and uh, obviously einstein already said that he never had his best ideas at work he used to have them under the shower uh, or going for a walk um and 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 some something happens with our mind isn't it sometimes that flow happens and that's when the creativity comes up Now, um, Torsten, um, when we first met, and um, Emma, I would like to, and, and our dear viewers, I would like to share that story. Uh, so a couple of years ago, um, uh, I had the pleasure to go to travel to Singapore uh, to do a program with, um, with senior leaders at Roche. And um, um, I, I had the pleasure to travel to Rotkreuz and meet my collaborator and co-trainer. And so I, I, I did that. I, I traveled to, to, to Rotkreuz, which is a place in Switzerland. Um, and I met Torsten. That was my first encounter with Torsten. So this was a program which was combining the, let's say, the organizational aspect of agile transformation, the mind, the, the work on the mindset, and then also um, the aspect of mindfulness. And uh, Torsten, I will never forget when we sat. So honestly, you shared with me that You know, Christoph, I look forward to travel with you to Singapore and work with you over these couple of days. But to be very honest, Mindfulness doesn't work for me, and I don't really believe in it. Also, and I stood there and sat there, and I was kind of two things happened simultaneously. I felt so I don't know connected to you because you were honest, you were vulnerable, you were just speaking out what you were thinking. Um, and at the same time, I was wondering how how on earth is this going to work out? I know that today you're a mindfulness trainer yourself, and so it would be so interesting for me to hear your journey. Um, kind of what made you kind of change your, your, your mind? And how do you see that role of mindfulness today from, from where you stand? Yeah, so I, I remember that meeting very well because I remember you turning all pale when I, when I said <laughs> I don't really believe in this, but I'm looking forward to, the, to, to our collaboration. Um, and at the time, I, my, my belief was driven by what I perceived mindfulness to be it in that in that moment and it was something that went in my mind hand in hand with we gotta light a couple of candles now and all get a cup of tea and get in our yoga pants and and you know save the world and and once we're done we'll go outside hug some trees and and everything will be good that that was mindfulness in in my mind and i i did not see how on earth that should help the leaders I work with to serve the purpose of the organization better than all the other things we, we do with them. Um, but I felt, I, I think we, we had a similar experience. I felt something very uh, sincere and authentic in how you talked about mindfulness. And I was curious to find out how it how it will work out and you were we were we were brought together by a by a former colleague of mine somebody i hold in high regard and i trust her judgment and so i figured well if it's okay for her I, you know we'll give it a try see where it goes um and then in that first session we did in singapore with a very very business focused team with a very tough leader you know not the easiest client you can have for this kind of topic it worked exceptionally well and i had the feeling we're taking them to a place that they've where they've never been before and they never find this place on their own and it's it's working it's i can't really explain it but it something is happening here i'm, I'm observing something And, and and of course we had a couple of conversations when we went for dinners together and so on and and yeah I, I I just so I observed this and plus I myself am that kind of individual that and I I think you described earlier um, I've always been 
very driven. I can't stop my brain from working. I'm constantly thinking. Um, I'm constantly processing. Logic is my currency. And, um, and so the only times when my brain, when I felt my brain stops working is when I go for a run and get into that flow state, or I go ski mountaineering and I walk up the mountain and, and my, I have the feeling my brain just stops working. So that, that flow state that you've both described earlier, that's, that worked. But I can't always go for a run or put on the skis and walk up a mountain just to relax my brain for a moment. And and in in the conversations that we had, Christoph, I I sense that well maybe this breathing thing could work for me. And turned out it did. And and so observing something with our with some of our toughest business leaders and experiencing it my myself and putting together the pieces just led to me then wanting to dive deeper and, and getting the accreditation for, for the topic. Here we are. Yeah. And what a, what a, what a beautiful journey. Now today you are delivering um, a mindfulness programs within Roche. How is that for you now being at the other end of the table? Um, are you getting paid yourself or <laughs> is it a very smooth, a smooth endeavor? No, it's it's I I think it's a it's a fantastic addition to all the other things we do with with leaders and team members in 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 Rush to help them develop because it's we 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 are in this situation you've you've talked about the VUCA world before and and now we've got this pandemic on top of it and so we've we've got a lot of things that can scare you and and probably should scare you and and fear is not a good consultant you know so um so we 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 i'd say we're we're all the level of anxiety or fear that we have has been elevated in the in the past 12 50 months for all of us whether we want to admit it or not you know we we're, we're more afraid now than we were 15 months ago um yet this situation that creates this this fear and anxiety also requires us to find those creative solutions to get out of this place again and 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 be able to move on so we somehow got to break that pattern right and and um and i think breathing techniques can be a fantastic way to 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 do that you know, there might be other ways that that work equally well, um, but breathing is something very simple that can be trained relatively easily, relatively quickly, and can have an impact very quickly. And since we don't have endless amounts of time to train people on other techniques and processes and so on, I think it's a fantastic fit for the situation we are facing yeah yeah and you're talking about uh, about the patterns um and probably the freedom many a times is 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 between that stimuli um and and our response sometimes we simply react i mean we talk agile we want to be creative we want to be innovative but then maybe we go to a meeting um there are a couple of people around the table or in the zoom zoom meeting and um, and maybe we, we react in a way which we don't like, and we are kind of not satisfied at the end of the meeting. We go back and we say to ourselves, you know, next time I'm, I'm going to do it all the, all different. You know, I'm going to be a different me and I'm going to be very calm and wise. And, and there the meeting comes and guess what? The chances are that I will show the same behavior again. So these reactive loops, um, I think we all know them. And it's not easy to overcome them. And 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 so, um, breathing techniques, and that's my experience as well, can help us to kind of practice presence, right? Um, and probably the more we do it, um, the more easier it is to then also experience these moments of presence when things are really very hectic. I think it has never been a wise idea to learn martial arts on the battlefield, right? So we couldn't really experiment with these breathing techniques right there in an important meeting, but withdrawing, taking time, practicing that presence muscle, how I would call it, probably comes handy and helps us to develop a culture of presence 
in crucial meetings. And then that little moment between maybe a stimuli between that comment that somebody makes and then my conscious response can make the world of a difference. And so to Emma, my question is, according to your experience, how long does it take um, for this, let's say, uh, training effect to start happening, right? I think people can have a good experience, they relax and uh, let go, but how long does it take so that you actually can take that presence in, in crucial, difficult me me situations and meetings where maybe fear and stress pops up? Yeah. So you're, you're so right. I mean, if we know that when you're stressed, you literally see less things. Like you physically see less things. You're restricted. Now, there's probably an evolutionary reason for that. Like we were meant to save our life. I mean, we're only supposed to feel stress um, five minutes in our life right before we die. That's, that's a quote from Robert Sapolsky, a, a stress uh, professor, scientist at Stanford. And really, the idea is we're only supposed to feel stress when we are in a life or death situation and we're being chased by a predator, right? Um, not all the time, but stress really does narrow our vision and narrows our ability to, to, to see from a broader perspective. But I would argue that we are very well trained to be stressed. Um, even if we complain about stress, many, many of us worship at the temple of stress. Um, what I mean by that is there's sort of this idea that in order to be productive, in order to get things done, you need to have this high adrenaline, more coffee and be stressed. The sense that I can't get any work done unless that's happening. That's why there are coffee machines in every workplace. But the problem is that we're not supposed to feel stressed chronically. And when we do, we actually wear down all of the systems um, that, that are amplified, but are only supposed to be amplified in the sort of acute sense during danger. But when they're amplified chronically, like your immune system, your, um, your cognition, your attention, your memory, all of the things that are very sharp, um, during stress, when it's chronic, all of those things start to get depleted. And that's why you see over long-term burnout, fatigue, anxiety, all of those things. So, but we're very well-trained, even before pre-pandemic, we're very well-trained to be stressed and to activate it voluntarily um, with the sense that we'll be more productive, which is actually false. But so now I would say that, you know, really it depends where your nervous system is at, but we can be, we can train ourselves for stress resilience. We can train ourselves as long as we learn to activate and sort of train like a muscle, the other side of our nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest, the opposite of the fight or flight, the calming, restorative part of our nervous system, where we're actually meant to be for 95% of our life. You know, if you look at even animals in the, in the savannah who are being chased by a predator within minutes of being out of danger, they're just totally relaxed again. Why? Because in that space, you 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 restore your body, restore your cognitive faculties. Um, there's a very loud helicopter flying overhead in case you hear that. But so you're asking, you know, how long does it take to, to build? Well, really, it, first of all, it depends where you're at when you start. But I would say that um, it's so important to think of building stress resilience as a muscle and using breathing techniques, I think is one of the most efficient, fastest way to train yourself because you're tapping right into the parasympathetic nervous system. So we've worked with veterans with trauma who um, it's like they're in this heightened state of fight or flight all the time. And um, they have a real show me attitude. Like they don't want any BS, you know, it's like, okay, is this going to work? I want to find out in minutes. And within minutes, they notice a shift because Within minutes of doing long, slow, deep breathing and long exhales, boom, they feel calmer. And so that's something that you can notice right away. I mean, it happens right away. So I would say, you know, um, probably at, at least a daily practice for a couple of weeks, you should start to see a difference. And I think we see that also um, through in the research. Um, and this is a long answer, but I'll just end with this one study that was conducted at Harvard uh, by colleagues of mine that it, they... Um, they replicated the study we ran at Yale with students, but what they did was they also measured physiological changes. And what they saw was that before and after um, having learned the breathing technique, as opposed to the other group that had learned more cognitive reframing techniques, they showed less of a stress response physiologically in terms of heart rate and heart rate variability um, when about to enter a very stressful situation. So literally pre in that moment where they're anticipating entering a stressful situation, speaking in public, they have less of a stress response um, compared to before and compared to the, to the control group. So you can see that physiology. We also saw that with veterans, a physiological change. So that's when you know that there's something happening. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we are stressed, and I think it's a 
actually a very strong image um, that we should only be struck really at, at the time of at the time of, of, of death. But when we are stressed, I think we are much more likely to show our reactive behaviors, right? And then we are far away from, from that creative space. Um, so I'm wondering, Torsten, now, you are experiencing an organization of 95,000 people. And this organization is in an ecosystem of, of the corona pandemic, is going through tremendous uh, transformational processes uh, in the organization itself, I understand. Um, so how do you see the stress levels at the organizations, at the organization? And, and, and um, how are people coping with what is happening right now? Um, well, I guess the, 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 the quick and honest answer is from two. You know, you'll, you'll find people who cope with it in a, in a very good way because they've got their routines. They, uh, they've learned about their reactions. They've, they've done something about it and, and they managed to deal with it in a, in a pretty good way. And then you've got people who are, uh, driven by the, the transformation monster that chases them down the, down the corridor and, and, and then the pandemic on top of that and so on. And, and for them, it's a, it's a miserable time. I, I, I assume it's, it's, it's very difficult and there's, there's no light at the end of the, of the tunnel. And, and I think the, 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 what makes it especially difficult for them is that, well, if we if we enter this world of agility, um, we're not replacing the 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 old dogma with a new dogma, right? We're trying to get rid of the dogma and try to be flexible and deal with what's waiting for us out there, and 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 find the the best fitting way of dealing with with any given situation. So, a a lot of that. The perceived stability that they had in the in the old dogma is going away and is not being replaced with anything as tangible yet. So that is scary for for a lot of people. It's, it's I'd say it's scary for for most of us. Um, and so we 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 really have the entire bandwidth of of reactions currently, but. Given this uh, very unique situation that we are in, and, and also colleagues in in other uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies like like the ones that are developing the vaccines or something, it's it's um, it's enormously stressful. Um, and and on top of all of that, I think we also need to acknowledge that it's not only agility that helps us to. Launch these products quicker and find these vaccines. It's also that people work twenty four seven currently. Well, those teams work a lot. You know, they. I would say for the teams who are at the forefront, it's been a reality for a while and probably still is for those who work in the in the vaccine world. They haven't seen their family in a in quite a while, right? Because they are so absorbed by living up to the purpose and and delivering something and doing something and helping and, and taking it to the next level that they forget about this other side and that's a big risk that that i think the 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 senior leaders need to have an eye on currently because that that is something that is that is happening so yeah it's 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 everything it's really people who who take this self-care aspect serious, do something about it, and, and hence find their ways of, of dealing with this very stressful time. And there are those who are driven by the workload and the next project and, and so on. We, we, we have everything, but I think we have more of more in the first group every week. You know, because it's, there's a lot happening within the organization. The, the topic of mindfulness has picked up dramatically over the past uh, 12 months, I would, I would say. When the first lockdown started, we offered 
um, well, at least for in in uh, for the for the Swiss population, and I think also for the German population. And at one point, we offered two mindfulness sessions a day. Um, we we help try to give people a hand disconnecting before they go to the lunch table and meet their where they meet their families. And then also disconnecting again in the evening when the work is done before again before they walk back into their into their families right because it's all happening in the same 25 square meters now there's no drive to the office and from the office anymore where you can drive the system down and and disconnect and get ready for meeting the kids and 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 so on and and husband and and, and wife so we we, we, we try to embed it into their reality and that worked pretty well in the beginning I would I would say and that's why it picked up really enormously over the past 12 months and now it's actually a pull and not a push anymore it was a push in the beginning it's now definitely a pull that's really that's really fantastic and so um, we have many uh, thousand people viewing this um, podcast live and uh, many more will see it in the future. And I thought that we talked about the world, the VUCA world. We talked about the Corona influencing us. We talked about organizations, but let's also talk about ourselves. And maybe uh, both of you could share a tip uh, with the audience. I was, I was wondering, um, would you mind sharing with the audience? What are you actually doing? How are you coping with the stress? Imagine, um, you know that um, tomorrow you will have a very important presentation. Something is 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 in your way. You realize that some stress is coming up. How? What do you do to manage yourself? Um, and um, maybe the audience could learn from you. And I want to start with Emma. <laughs> you look so relaxed, anyhow. Or whenever I see you. Um, well, I mean, I definitely, you know do the, the sky breath meditation daily. There's just too much evidence now to, to let that go by. Um, and I also meditate twice a day. Um, but the one thing um, that I also do that I find uh, tremendously beneficial is to try and go out into nature at least 15 minutes a day if I can. Um, you know, I know that's not always available to everyone living in a city, but I noticed it makes a huge difference. And I also know the research shows uh, it makes a tremendous difference for your emotional well-being, but also for your, for your mental well-being, for your mental faculties, um, and even for your relationships. And this is this is science that people don't wait, always know about because no one's out there marketing it because no one's going to make any money off of it. But I find that um, there's, there's a lot of research on it, but also just my own research, you know, where our body is our lab. And uh, I find that really beneficial. That's beautiful. The body is our lab. So, Thorsten, what is where do you find refuge, so to say? Um, many things, different things. Actually, it's um, it's definitely also the 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 breathing elements that I that I uh, uh, built in, and I I'm 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 probably not on the same level that the two of you seem to be on. You seem to be. Uh, 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 much more, uh, I don't know whether rigid is the right word about it, but, but, uh, it's, I, I don't manage to do it every day. I'm, I'm not yet at that stage where I can say I, I really, it's, it's a, it's a first thing in the morning. But, um, what I always manage to do and what I always try to do is, uh, when the stress builds up, um, think about what does me good, you know, and sometimes that's, putting the headphones on and, and listening to Miles Davis, or sometimes it's cuddling the, the dogs that, that sleep here to my left and to my right now. And, and sometimes it's a good meal or a glass of wine or something, but something that I know will do me good now. And that changes, you know, sometimes it's, it's not music and music would drive me crazy, but it's that glass of wine now or a good meal or playing with the dogs or something. But, I know it will do me good now and it will take me to a different place for those few minutes. Beautiful. And I think, you know, many a times um, mindfulness is, 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 is just looked at as a technique and obviously it is a technique, but maybe more importantly, it's a state of mind. 
uh, it's these moments when we are really present. And I remember uh, Emma and Thorsten a couple of weeks ago, a participant in one of our active train the trainer programs was telling me, you know, I'm confused because, okay, breathing techniques, that's quite useful, but I, I feel most happy <laughs> um, when I'm do, when I do my shopping, you know, <laughs> so you were saying um, um, shopping is my, is my mindfulness and, and well, good point. You know, if shopping brings us to the present moment, um, then so be it. Then that is what we should do. I think uh, many a times, though, probably we would say not every time we go shopping, we have this beautiful state of presence. But whatever whatever does the trick is is good. And for me at the moment, really, uh, it's it's very much like Emma is saying the nature. Actually, I have as I'm not able to go to the fitness studio, I go to the forest almost every day and listening to the birds brings me to the present moment and uh, makes me feel just good and rich from within and actually grateful. And I think gratefulness is something extremely powerful um, and it, it, it connects us to, to maybe something bigger in our life. So thank you so much to both of you for this conversation. And as these are difficult times, um, I actually wanted to um, ask you uh, one last question and that is, and you not really connected to mindfulness, but I just wanted to ask you both from your very rich experience, what is it that at the moment gives you hope, let's say, um, for us as a humanity that we will move to this crisis, um, let's say, in a way that, um, that allows us to be healthy, happy, and um, in a good place? And maybe, I don't know who would like to go first. Shall I, shall I start this time, Emma? So you, you had to take the last one, so I'll, I'll, I'll take this one. Um, so what gives me hope in, in this crazy situation is that I think it helped a lot of us to recalibrate, reevaluate what's really important for us. You know, I, I felt... I, I feel the world is a crazy place right now, but I also feel that it was a crazy place when this hit us, uh, uh, you know? and some things had been getting out of control and i think this this pandemic as as terrible as it is in 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 its effect it helped us to to recalibrate and and value things again that we had forgotten to value um beforehand and and that I think is something very positive because that shows me that we 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 are capable of that. We can rebound as a human race, and we we can focus again on what's really important, regardless of how crazy it is around us. That's I think what gives me hope. Very powerful. Thank you. Thank you, Torsten. Yeah, I love what uh, what you said, Torsten. Um, I. You know, I think it's it's made people become more contemplative, uh, which is just so so powerful so, to what Thorsten said. And the other thing that gives me hope is that I feel like, you know, so many people have helped each other out during this time. And whenever I hear about those stories of neighbors helping neighbors, raising money for this person, that person, you know, that's just that gives me hope. You know, it's always like human beings are 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 good. Human beings want to help each other. You know, um, there's this whole message out there that human beings are selfish um, and ego-driven first and foremost. But if you look at the data, that's actually not the case. If you look at the data, when people are given the zero-sum game or some kind of prisoner's dilemma, and they're given just a few seconds to answer, they're going to choose the fair choice. They're going to share, right? If you give them a, a longer then maybe they'll start thinking, okay, I don't know. But the first impulse is always to help. And you see that even in, in infants and in children or in toddlers, their first impulse is to share, to give. And that's that's been shown in a number of studies. Um, and so it, it just always that reminder of just the goodness of human nature, of, of how much people have come together to try and help and support each other. That is inspiring to me. And that just shows, you know, that the resilience of the human spirit and the goodness of the human spirit um, in general. So. Well, that's that's very beautiful. So the first the first real instinct uh, of us is to to actually to actually help and uh, that's beautiful you know it reminds me of uh, 
study, which was actually done in the 1970s in the in the UK when we still had the phone booths. So what they did, uh, and they might will be familiar with that study, is that um, they had people come to the phone booth and they staged an old an old lady in front of this phone booth, um, and she she had her, her shopping bags and 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 then. Um, you could see that she needed help. So what they did, one group actually, in this phone booth, when they were trying to do a call, they found the coin, right, a, a pound coin. And the other group did not find the pound coin. So obviously the group which found the pound coin was elevated. And in this, in this experiment, it was shown that more than 80% of the people who found the coin afterwards were ready to help this lady. But the group of people who did not find the coin, it was less than 10 Ten percent, actually, and I think that goes to show that that state of our own mind is so important um, because when we are elevated, and I don't want to say that we need to find coins, but if we are elevated, if we are connected to ourselves, then we are also more connected, uh, more connected to others. And I think what f gives me hope is that, um, in one way or another, um, this uh, crisis has forced us to stop. And I think the agility is also about both running and stopping and then maybe re-engaging in the activity with more wisdom. And um, it definitely stopped me and um, it stopped all of us. And I think in that moment of being stopped, I think some of the conversations um, I was able to have with people and some of the conversations which take place in the world, I feel are more from the heart um, and are more purpose-driven. And I think we are asking ourselves a couple of really important questions. And that definitely gives me hope. Um, these moments when we greet each other, really, maybe the neighbors out there really from the heart instead of just from the lips. These are the moments which fill my heart and give me hope. And I also very much appreciate the way we were able to interact, Emma and Torsten, tonight. Um, and for you, it's the afternoon, Emma. Um, thank you so much. I think this was also a conversations both from the head and the heart. Um, you shared so much about your very vast professional experience and you shared a couple of very personal insights into your lives. And for that, I'm, I'm deeply grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, this was great. And thanks to the audience for joining the Tilex podcast, uh, which is um, streamed tonight in collaboration with the World Forum for Ethics in Business. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks to you both. It was wonderful just to connect. Absolutely. Thanks, Christopher, for organizing this. <laughs>